It's on. Good morning. How is everyone? So good to be here and, uh, you know, it really is an honor to be here and to minister with you, to share with you this morning. Thank you, Greg, Danielle, for such a, a warm welcome. Um, I, I did recover from the buggy incident, you know, I, I, have, a, I have a sort of like a, a phobia now about parents pushing buggies. And, you know, I can't even remember that. I can remember connecting, I can remember um, that conversation, but uh, obviously the buggy incident was more in your <laughs> awareness than mine. Our nation is um, not just ripe for a fresh move of God, our, um, our nation actually desires a fresh move of God. One of the things I've come to realize over recent months is just how much innate within every single person is this cellular spirituality that just when it's exposed to the presence of God, responds. I was sharing with my church recently how, you know, there's these subtle little things happening in the world today that try to suppress everything that God does. Uh, one of the classic ones, and, I, and you need to be praying into this, is that there's a fresh wave of healing um, moving throughout nations, healing in the name of Christ, people experiencing healing. And recently in England, uh, there's an organization called HOTS, H-O-T-S, Healing on the Streets. And it's really run by the Evangelical Alliance. It's um, not even necessarily Pentecostal in its base or apostolic. It's just good, healthy, Christ-preaching Bible-believing Christians and Methodist churches and Presbyterian churches and Baptist churches believing that God wants to heal people physically, heal people physically. And uh, they advertise on their website and they go out on the street, hence healing on the streets, invite people to come for prayer or pray for people on the streets of England. And recently, the Advertising Standards Association of England, not the government, not the police, the Advertising Standards, has outlawed their healing activity and has actually enacted laws that are supposed to be for the protection of people in the area of pharmaceuticals and cosmetics in advertising, where you can't advertise something as a pharmaceutical drug or a cosmetic unless it's been through scientific proof. They applied that same law and have literally, by an act of law, stopped these Christian organizations advertising on their website or brochures or anything that they will pray for physical healing. It's right now before Westminster, and the reason I'm sharing this with you is I want you to wake up to the awareness of just the subtlety of what happens when Christian believers extract themselves from secular places of influence and allow vacuums to form. The tragedy of this thing happening with the advertising standards, like I said, it's not an act of parliament saying we're going to outlaw it, it's just a group of people who are part of a a board, a, an oversight, a, 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 an influential decision-making organization, advertising standards who say, you know what, we're not going to let people advertise that they can pray for healing. If people say that, we're going to apply the same rules that we would have pharmaceuticals saying there has to be scientific proof. And it currently, as I said, it's right now before Westminster as, uh, as a concern because these organizations have, by writ of law, been asked to remove off their websites and off every piece of literature the word physical, healing. They've said graciously, the advertising standards has told all us churches in England that they're allowed to put on there that they can pray for spiritual healing, but not physical healing. Now, I want to take you back six weeks ago. I shared with my own church seven weeks ago this, this area. 
not to have a go at the advertising standards, not to be angry at them, but more to say this is what happens when vacuums are created, when we tell people who are young and emerging and working in publicity and advertising and graphics that, well, that's just their job and it's not really that spiritual and what you're doing for God and church is the primary thing. And, and we, we, we inadvertently create these vacuums without realising actually, you know, if, if, if kingdom people, Esthers and Daniels and Josephs of this world, had just got into those areas and arenas and were validated by the church to say that is your mission, that is your assignment, that's your kingdom thing, to excel in those areas. Not just to only preach the gospel and evangelize, but to excel in those areas, to actually work as worship, to serve in that capacity. What if there'd been a group of people sitting around that board who were kingdom people, who'd seen this thing and said, this is ridiculous? Because you see, what the Advertising Standards Association says, is they say, we have the heartbeat of the nation. We have the, the cellular heartbeat. We understand. People don't want these things out on the street with people giving false hope and saying they'll pray for physical, physical healing. We, we're happy for the church to be isolated into a circuit called spirituality. But don't touch our physical. Don't touch our work. Don't touch our values. Don't touch our social structure. Don't touch our community. Just be isolated. You see, that's what the enemy does. And so the Advertising Standards Association tell everyone, you know what, we really don't want churches saying that they will pray for physical healing because actually our nation doesn't want that. The week after I shared that in my church, a young 23-year-old football player playing for Bolton called Fabrice Mwambe collapsed and died in front of tens of thousands of Tottenham and Bolton fans. His heart stopped beating. He collapsed and died. And within a minute, people would rush to his side and applying CPR. He was on the field for 12 minutes whilst they tried to revive his heart. His heart would not restart he was rushed to hospital. In total, 78 minutes this man was dead before his heart started to beat of its own accord. What transpired was amazing. From the moment he collapsed on the field, players of all different ethnicities, even belief systems, the majority fell to their knees and started to pray. There's images everywhere of football players just standing beside him, praying. People in the stands, people over the PA systems told the tens of thousands of people, pray, pray for Moambe, pray for this man. Whilst this 23-year-old's life has sapped and gone and people are working, trying desperately to get his heart going, the default setting of nearly every single person in that stand in England was pray, pray for physical healing. Do you know, over the next few days, every single major newspaper in England had these words on the front page. Pray. Pray for Moambe. T-shirts underneath all of the, the football players, risking literally thousands of pounds worth of individual fines. Every single player in different teams who put pray for Moambe on their shirts when they went out to play, breached every protocol of the professional football league where there must be no statements of religiosity or political or any other thing. Every one of them, no, pray. Pray for Mwambe. Finally, after three or four days, his heart had stabilised, eventually operated, put a defib into him permanently. And the doctor interviewed the head cardiologist. He said after 78 minutes of this man not having a heartbeat of his own, he said if in the medical profession... We want to talk about a, a recovery or a healing that stretches to the very boundaries of medical possibility and into the miraculous. He said, this is it. A nation said, pray. And an advertising association, just a few moments earlier, sat around a table saying, well, we're happy for 
the churches to say that they will pray for spiritual healing, but not physical. What if on that day in that stadium with tens of thousands of people standing, praying for Moambe, one of those professing themselves to be wise, but actually being fools, had stood up, took the microphone and excused everyone and said, excuse me, please, um, no, no, you don't understand, you've got this wrong. According to our regulations, there has been no physical proof of testings, of subjective placebo-based testings to prove that this will take... So actually, could you all just start praying for Moambe's spiritual healing? You see, he didn't need to be spiritually healed at that moment. He already had a faith in God. He needed a physical healing. And I don't know why I'm starting off a message this way, because I didn't intend to, but you'll probably see how it connects, and especially connects tonight as I talk about the kingdom and the church and how E. Stanley Jones, one of the greatest um, preachers of the kingdom of God, 50 years ahead of his time in 1960, said these words. He said, my fear for the church of the future, that's us, is not that we would reject the kingdom of God, but that we would in fact reduce it. And in reducing it, we would reduce it simply to being the church. You see, when Christians withdraw from areas of vocation, influence, community, society. The vacuum sucks into its very core. At best, humanistic ideology, and at worst, actually strategies of the devil to try to counter what the kingdom of God is doing. In a few moments, as I share with you, I think you'll see the connection to where we started. But if anything, right from the outset, can I challenge you to understand that the innate heartbeat of our nation, when you remove the the smoke and mirrors of humanism and secular thinking, every person is created by God. Every person is in the image of God. Every person has a capacity to know God. And the one thing more than anything else that will bring a person to a faith and understanding is not just our preaching of words or making aware to them their their deficiency of of spirituality. It's just introducing them to the presence of God. The presence of God, the most contagious. You know, we talk about the wine skin and the wine skin's important, but the wine skin only has one purpose, to facilitate the wine, to hold the wine, the presence of God. You know, just before I I share with you, um, and I I want to do this obviously because of our, our time that we have this morning and just limitations of only being with you today, but how many people here own a computer, an iPod, or an MP3 player? That's good, the vast majority. Can I share with you something really exciting? I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about this because in the past number of years, whenever I come and minister in different churches or leadership things, I often bring a whole bunch of CD series on different things. And, and one of the neat things about technology is um, what we've been able to do is put onto a USB 50 messages. It's called the Legacy Collection. It's a collection of literally what I would say the most powerful series of messages and ministries I've ministered in our own church and in different environments. There's actually 10 different series. Some of them have up to 10 or 12 different messages like on how to identify your mission in life, um, breaking the orphan spirit, spirit of sonship, faith and generosity, things that used to be like boxes and boxes of, of CDs and that now fit onto this little USB. And if you've got a computer, you can plug it in, you can transfer it, you can give some to your friends, you can burn it off into CDs, you can load it up onto an iPod or any MP3 player and listen. Um, over 50 messages in there plus uh, an ebook in there on Shame Off You, the book we wrote. 
all on this one little USB, and at the end of the day, you've got a nice four gigabyte um, memory stick you can use for other things, take pictures of your family and take it around. So those are available, but I actually want to give one of these away. The other cool thing is it means that we'll be able to, there's about $400 worth of resources on there, um, and yet this is under $100. So putting it together, it's just a powerful way to do it. But I want to give this away to somebody here who is either working or studying in the area I just mentioned, advertising, marketing, or publicity. First hand up that I see that you're in that area. Somebody's pointing over this way. Okay. Young lady over here, is that... Great. And, sir, are you in that area as well? Okay. Well, I'm going to give two of these away then. If you can just mention to Heather, um, and if somebody could maybe run this one, thank you very much, to the young lady over here. Okay. It's a pleasure. I want you to turn with me to the book of Second Kings, chapter 6. I'm going to read to you a story that at first read will sound absolutely irrelevant to anyone here apart from somebody who's in the landscaping industry. The company of the prophets said to Elisha, Look, the place where we meet with you is far too small for us. So let us go to the Jordan where each one of us can get a beam and let us build a place there for us to dwell. And he said, Go. Then one of them said, well, won't you please come with us, your servants? I will, Elisha replied. And he went with them and they went to the Jordan and they began to cut down trees. And as one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. Oh, my Lord, OMG, (laughs) he cried out. It was borrowed. And the man of God asked, where did it fall? And then he showed him the place and Elisha cut a stick and he threw it there. And he made the axe head float. Lift it out, he said. And then the man reached out his hand and he took it. Now, I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that, where you've been working with something like an axe and an axe head flies off and it lands in this murky, deep river and then somebody comes up and says, where did you lose it? And you point to the place and they cut off a stick next to the tree you're trying to cut down, throw it in the water, and all of a sudden this metal axe head floats to the surface. I mean, that would be a tremendous ability to have, especially if you're playing golf with Pastor Greg. (laughs) That would be an absolutely awesome, awesome, awesome gifting to have. He would have so many more golf balls in his collection if that happened. I don't play golf, but I did have a very similar experience to what I've just described to you. I fish. And I fish off a jet ski. It's a great way to fish in Auckland. You get out on the water, you're on your jet ski, you're fishing, you're drift fishing. And I was out there one time with my wife and we rarely ever come back with less than four or five beautiful snapper. And I cast my rod and I catch this beautiful fish and as I'm pulling it in, on the front of the jet ski, one of those three-seater sea-doos, so you're sitting on the seat, there's a cowling you lift up and there's a big sort of bucket area which can probably hold half a dozen fish. And I'm grabbing this fish and I'm, I, I, I lift up the cowling. And as I do, I hear and see simultaneously my car keys that were inside the cowling in a sub-compartment which should have been shut but wasn't, literally drop into the water. And I hear the plop. 
And then I look and I'm like, as I see this, probably 20 meters of water, my keys disappear. And just like Elisha's prophet, I yell out, OMG, oh my Lord, they were borrowed. You see, his problem wasn't just that he'd lost an axe head. His problem was that he had borrowed the axe. It had been entrusted to him and he had to return it. You see, my car keys were entrusted to me. It was a lease vehicle. What that meant is that I had one year left on the lease of my little Honda and I knew that I'd have to go back to Honda lease and I'd have to give them back the car because we pay a lease monthly and we hand back the car. But we also have to hand back all of the car. (laughs) I've got to hand back the spare tire. I've got to make sure that the thing that changed the tire is there. I've got to hand back the two keys that come with it. And of course, as I quickly found out, that the key, one of those chip ones with the immobilizer and the thing, are $425 to replace. Hmm. The fish cost me $85 each that day that I caught. (laughs) And sure enough, 12 months later, I had to return my vehicle, that which was entrusted to me. The good side of things is I've done less mileage than the anticipated. There was a bit of a credit situation that sort of offset, but I felt the pain of watching my keys float to the bottom. And believe me, if I could have cut off a stick and thrown it and watched these things float to the surface, I would have been grateful because it was borrowed. You see, the thing is, the language in the book of Second Kings here literally is this, this axe This instrument has been entrusted to me and I've lost it. See, I I want to talk to you about how to find your lost calling. Because if you take the understanding of the story, it's not just simply an account of anecdotes, of little things that happened in the life of Elisha. You know, a funny thing happened on the way to the temple. (laughs) Ha ha, these guys were chopping and an accident fell. No, there is a spiritual principle in here that applies to the church and the kingdom today. Because what we need to understand is that the the company of prophets, they weren't just prophets, there was actually a company. It was a gathering, it was a community of prophets and the prophet of the day was literally the representation of God on earth. His prophets represented the power of Christ, represented the personhood represented the presence. When the prophet came to town, it was like God came to town. When a prophet saw a need, it was like God was meeting a need. They spoke the word of God. They brought the power of God. They brought the presence of God. And so the company of the prophets is really simply a type of the church today. That every believer is authorized to bring the presence of God, the personhood of God, the power of God into every arena of our community and society that we go into. And we carry the presence and we carry the power. And this group of people came to the same revelation that we need to wake up to and come to. They said to the prophet Elijah, this place where we dwell It's too small. And the word used for small there is the same word to be translated. It's too straight. Straight, like as in cook straight. It literally means in Hebrew, it's too narrow. 
It's too limiting. And you see, what has happened over recent years, perhaps especially decades, but at least in some form or another, a number of centuries, is the church has become reduced to the place where we now dwell has become too narrow, too limiting. The quote I gave you from E. Stanley Jones who says, my fear for the church of the future is not a rejection of the kingdom of God, but a reduction where the kingdom of God simply becomes the church. This group of prophets came to a revelation. They said, this place where we dwell. See, the other thing is interesting. The word there, some translations use the word live. It's not the best translation. The word to dwell in the Hebrew literally means to sit as in a sense of to function and to govern. You know when they talk about parliament sitting and they talk about how parliament is now sitting, it doesn't mean that they're just warming those hideous green leather chairs with their big butts. It's just a sense of not sitting as in just we're sitting. It literally means when parliament sits, it means it's active. It's doing what it was called to do, to enact on behalf of the people, for security, for welfare, for benevolence. The whole purpose of government is there to govern for the sake of the people, the sake of, of the laws of the land and the, and, the, and the decisions to be made for the benevolence of and the benefit of a nation. These prophets weren't saying, we just want to have a place to live, we just want a roof over our heads. They said, we want to be able to be somewhere where we can sit and govern and act and represent. When I talked to you tonight about the church and the kingdom, you know when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. He took the word ecclesia, the word which he took out of Roman and Greek political arenas. It was the first time the word had ever been used. Actually, Jesus only uses the word church twice in all of the recordings of everything he said for three and a half years. But he mentions the word kingdom over a hundred times. And he says to us, he says, you make disciples of nations and I'll build my church. And we flip-flop. We say, no, no, we'll build the church. You disciple nations. But the word ecclesia, people go, oh, I know what that means. I've, I've been taught that before. I've been told it means that we are the called out ones. And we think it means we're called out of the world. It does not mean we're called out of the world. It means to be called out for the purpose of ruling. The ecclesia of the Greek, the Athenian, the Roman um, political environments was the right of every citizen. They had the ability to become ecclesia just by rocking up, just by deciding to be part of a group who would gather together for the purpose of bringing governance and rulership and blessing and benefit, of bringing the culture of Rome or the culture of Greek. Jesus didn't use the word synagogue. He didn't say, I'm going to build my my, my collective, I'm going to increase my temple, I'm just going to build this little religious community. No, he says, I'm going to call out people for the purpose of governing. And he says, it's my ecclesia. I want my, my, my church to sit, to enact. And these prophets come to a revelation. They say, you know what? The place that we, where we are, the place where we're actually sitting is so narrow. Oh God, that we would wake up as the church in this nation and realize that the place where we live is too straight. It's too narrow. We've limited ourselves to say spirituality has a function within the, 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 the Sunday services, and that's where we enact our callings and giftings. And then our only release of purpose and gifting outside of that is simply to evangelize. And we get it all mixed up. 
If you can, I want you to come out tonight, not to hear another message or to attend a church service, but to reshape and understand our, our purpose. Because, you see, we get it all wrong. We think that, that we've got the world and we've got heaven and that the purpose of the church is to be an intermediary where we get people out of the world into the church to prepare them for heaven. No, it's not. God said, I want you to pray this, that my kingdom would come, my will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've flipped it around the wrong way. We go, no, God, your church is here to get people out of the world into the church to prepare them for heaven. And he's like, no, I want you to get heaven into the world through the church. You see, what's amazing here is that these, these prophets come to a revelation. They say, this place where we live, it's just too restrictive. Come on, let's go somewhere and let's each one of us build this place. Let's build this kingdom. They said, let each one of us take responsibility for a beam, an assignment. You know, it's amazing. My, my wife and I were up in um, Waitangi in Kerikeri just a, a month or so back. We went into the old stone house, you know, the oldest stone and, and timber structure in New Zealand. And uh, I love buildings. I'm up in the, in the attic and Rosalind's looking at all these wonderful little tools of how they cross-stitched and cooked. And I'm just looking at the structure of the building, the beams. Every beam was different. All hewed out by hand. All connecting to create a structure that stayed up now for over 200 years. Every beam was unique. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God has planned in advance for you to do. Do you know, every single one of us has assignment. Destiny is not spelt single event, 15 minute of fame. You hear people talk about, you know, I've got a destiny and we think it's this one thing we're going to do, this one big thing we're going to do just before we die. No, no, I, I, the way I paint destiny is I, I, I use the image of almost like a, like a mosaic where every single good work, Ephesians 2, every good work, every assignment, every kingdom thing I do, from the smallest act of smiling to brighten someone's day to maybe something of a larger scale of writing something or teaching something or, or building something or, or counseling or whatever it may be or bringing some influence into an arena of business through our church or, or, or community or politics or whatever, all those little mosaic pieces, my goal is at the end of my life. All those pieces put together will spell destiny. Everyone has a beam. And the man of God, Elisha, says, go and each one cut down a beam. So we read that as they're doing that, you see, if the, if the beam is our assignment and if the mission is building the kingdom, that if their location of that new place to dwell, and if that's the mission... And if the beam is their assignments, then what is the axe? And what is the axe head? Well, I believe it's our calling. It's our vocations. It's our giftings. I know that because I've sat under many sermons where people love preaching on this and talk about how we need to sharpen the axe and, and we need our cutting edge. And the only reason that, that this, this axe head flew off the handle is because it was blunt and you hit, hit an axe head against wood with blunt, it'll fly off. Well, let me tell you that the guy down in South Canterbury last year who got hit in the groin by an axe head that flew off a wood chopper at a competition and really badly hurt the guy, that didn't fly off because it was blunt. 
It flew off just because it flew off. It wasn't on properly. He'll tell you it doesn't have to be blunt for it to fly off. You see, this sermon's not just about, and this passage about getting your cutting edge back. This is literally asking the question, have you, like the prophet, lost your calling? Lost your calling. Because the amazing thing here is, you see, he says it was entrusted to me. Jesus talks about giving us talents, giving us gifts, giving us abilities. And he says, I'm coming back. And I want to know what you did with them. There is a judgment seat of Christ. But for the Christian, it's not a judgment, the great white throne judgment of whether our words, our, our names are in the book of life. It's not heaven or hell. It's just a judgment of what we did. It's not even a judgment of what we didn't do or, or it's not even a judgment of what we did wrong. It's just literally what, what remains that was actually what I asked you to do. Some people think you can get to heaven and God's going to play on a, on a, on a large screen TV everything you did wrong. That's good old fiery evangelist stuff, but it's not doctrine. The judgment seat of Christ is simply to have a look. Okay, now the fire has passed over. What's left? Oh, there's a few stones and that. There's a bit of the mosaic. So you see, what happens is, is you've got all these prophets, which is you. It's not just Greg. It's not just Martin. It's not just the eldership. Every person is a representative of God on the planet. Some of us, our role is to empower representatives. But you're to do the work of the ministry. And that doesn't just mean ushering in church. And that doesn't just mean leading worship in church. Those are elements. But actually, to be honest, that's the small end of the wedge. The big end of the wedge is how do you use your giftings and callings 24-7 out in the kingdom, (laughs) the place where God wants influence and culture and, and his kingdom to come. And I would suggest that most Christians are walking around going, I've lost it. Because you see, your vocation is your axe. Your giftings is the axe head. And what happens is we've got a doctrine in most churches where we tell people that their giftings and their spiritual gifts and their their, their, their calling in life is all to be found within the church. And so what happens is we have men and women walking around church here on Sunday holding this flipping great big beam, walking around going, I've just cut this out and I can't see where it fits. Actually, it doesn't seem to fit. And it's not meant to fit here. It's actually maybe a beam to support something out in society. I've got a young man in my church who, who, who's working his way as hard as he can and as dedicated as he can through the police force to get into a point where he will become a detective. He's one of the youngest people in New Zealand now to be given that opportunity because of his diligence and his skill and his passion. But when I talk to him and others, he says it for one reason. He says, I believe God will give me divine strategies from heaven to know how to start to overcome crimes of wave or wave crimes that are sweeping through areas from abuse to drug addiction to whatever. He says, I'm not there just to exert a position. He says, I'm believing I'll be in a place where God will start to give me strategies to push back the destructive forces in society. You see, that's his beam. And it's not going to fit in the church. Because to be honest, although we're a mixed up, interesting bunch at Harborside, there's not too many crime waves happening. There's a few, I'm working on them, but there's not too many. 
You see, the beam needs to be cut and placed out there in the place that's not too restrictive. And what happens, you see, is this, this prophet, there, he, he's out there and he suddenly has this revelation. He's like, you know, I've, 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 got this, I've got this axe head, I've got my calling, I've got my gifting, and I just don't know where I can use this. It's like I've lost this thing and the place where I've lost it, it, it it's sunk. And what I love is what happens is that the man of God comes to him and he says to him, show me the place where you lost it. Take me to the place where this thing has been lost. You know, it's amazing. I, I talked to a couple of people about a month or so ago. One was at a church leadership event up north and I, I was sharing on some of these thoughts and the pastor came up to me afterwards and his spouse and they said, you know, we were so dedicated to our church ministry for 30 years that our calling to be parents suffered. It's not that we couldn't have done both. It's that we were encouraged really to only see one of the greatest value and that our family should be sacrificed on the altar of ministry because that's eternal. I spoke to another man who I respect tremendously. He's had a a tremendous influence in my life over many years. He's a pastor. He's, a, he's actually a counsellor and a pastor, a minister, but he's also one amazing artist. And he shared with me how in his late 1970s, when he came to faith, he, his dream was to go to art school and do fine arts at Elam College. And the predominant culture of the time took him aside to say, that's vanity. And it has no eternal value. And Jesus is coming back in the next decade anyway. So why would you do that? And so he, he let go of his passion for art and he went to Bible school. And I thank God that in the last decade he's rediscovered his vocation and calling as an artist. He's a man who's been through some life tragedies, tragically lost a beautiful grown-up son to a, to a horrific tragedy and accident. But his paintings tell the story of how to live in shadows, not just light. How to live in shadows, not just light. And actually his messages that he preaches as a pastor and a counsellor is probably only sometimes perhaps even a quieter, quieter sound than his art that speaks to hundreds and hundreds of people who never will enter a church building initially. I thank God that his vocation... <laughs> His axe head came to the surface. You know, when Christian people and believers with faith abandon their places of influence in society, politics, education, business, the marketplace, art, sport, whatever, we get this vacuum that I told you about where we get angry when we look at the, the corruption, we get angry when we look at the culture in, in different areas. I mean, one of the things I, I think of a lot is the the whole area of, of music and the arts. And I don't know about you, but you know, I get parents all the time who are angry at the, 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 the words and the lyrics you know, that, that, that happen in our songs that our young people are listening to, but I don't, get angry at the, I don't get angry at the artists. I get angry at the church. I get angry at myself. Because it's like every time somebody with, with singing ability and gifting and music is saved in church, we, we try to tell them that this is where their axe head must function. That, that this is the place where they must chop down the tree. Now, don't get me wrong. There will be some. Maybe it's the one out of every hundred who's called to make this platform 
or my platform of church worship their primary, primary focus of that gifting. But the other 99 are actually called to probably only tithe their gifting into church. And then 90% must be out in society writing songs, performing, changing culture. You know, when I was sharing my own church on this, I thought I'm going to go on to the, 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 the top 10 songs currently on the New Zealand charts and find out what sort of lyrics are being taught. And, you know, I got everything from Bruno Mars, you know, the lazy song where he says, you know, I'm sitting on the couch, hang loose in my Snuggie, flick on MTV, they'll teach me how to Dougie. I got that. <laughs> I'm like, good on you, Bruno. You want to sit on your couch and flick on MTV and your Snuggie and learn how to Dougie? That's, that's awesome, man. If you can do those moves, good on you. The next one, of course, was LMFAO. Like, you know, the interesting song. Like, how, how do you get a whole chorus that just goes, wiggle, 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 wiggle. Yeah, yeah, wiggle, 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 wiggle. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sexy and I know it. I'm, I'm like, I don't even want to know what's moving. I, I just, I... I, I I just don't want to build my life on that, you know. And I, and I look at that stuff and then we can go, oh, it's, it's just terrible. It's just awful. It's just, I mean, how, how dare they do that? Like, well, I'll tell you why that happens. It happens because we get people in the church and, and, and we, we start looking at their axes and we go, whoa, that's an amazingly shiny axe that, wow, you can write. Oh, look, let me tell you, God's called you for such a time as this. You've you got to write songs of worship. You've got to play in church. Look, like I said, don't get me wrong. Some people, that is their primary calling. And it's actually this environment. Do you know, most of the people that I know in, in, in our church and, and through ministries in our church and places I've been before that actually have influence in the secular areas of, of media and music because of their talent, many of them honed the skills serving, tithing in this. But, oh, God, what would have happened if we just kept them all to ourselves? You know, it's, it might not seem so long ago that we had the likes of the, the Cliff Richards 40 years ago being absolutely rebuked because of the fact he would actually record with secular songs and albums. And we've got a little bit better than that. But you know what? One of the things that sickens me to the core is I still hear people refer to people who are now using their music gift out in the world or even their preaching gift, teaching it, at corporate seminars are labelled as people who prostitute their gifting. Prostitute their gifting. I had a good friend of mine who got access into one of the large organisational corporations of actually network marketing just to go in and do two to three lectures to four or five thousand people on family and values and, and, and dreaming and all this sort of stuff. And he did it on the condition that he would also be able to present simply an opportunity on a Sunday morning over that weekend of conference, to tell his life story about faith. And on average, he'd speak to 5,000 people a week. But he was also a preacher until everyone said, oh, you're just prostituting your gift. No, it's just the fact that the beam's bigger than the church. You know, it's dangerous stuff to preach. I couldn't preach this if I didn't have such a strong relationship with your pastor. Because I've preached this stuff in my church for the last three months. I've been preaching it for the last seven years. I've been there. But in a, in a condensed focus point, telling my church to, for goodness sake, get out of here. <laughs> Spend most of your time, get out of here. You know? It's like, don't walk around here and frustrate me with your jolly beams and, 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 and knock everyone over with your aggro bitterness. Because, uh, look, one of the top business, business people in my church, 
And it actually offended him at first. I know, I saw it in his eyes. Three years ago, came to our church, had geographically shifted, Taipei personality, great man of God. And he just said, look, I've got to let you know, Martin, this is what I do in my company. I'm a CEO of this organization. He says, I've just got to be honest with you. I can sit in your church for the next year or two and do nothing, but I've got tremendous leadership gifts. And he says, I don't care if you want me to run a conference. I don't care if you want me to organize your car parking, but for goodness sake, these are my giftings and it will really bless the church. And I said, well, let's just get to know each other. Let's grab a few coffees and get to know. Within a couple of meetings, I just looked at him one day and I said, you know what? You're not going to lead in my church. And he looked at me and said, what do you mean? I said, because that would be the worst stewardship of your gift that I would ever give a God account for. I said, because your leadership giftings, your leadership callings need to have their primary focus outside of this house. I said, my role is to try and find ways to empower you to better release those things. Joe, in those following, actually it's four years, those following four years, he's now become not only one of the most successful CEOs of one of New Zealand's great companies, but he teaches seminars to secular, non-church business people on values such as servant leadership and different things. He, he sits at tables when the global financial collapse um, was at its height two or three years ago and John Key had a gathering of 100 key influencers to discuss solutions and formed, sitting at the table was this man sharing values that were kingdom Bible-based values about turning an economy around because greed is not good. Giving is good. Generosity is good. Two Sundays later, I'm sitting in my church and I give an altar call for salvation and next to them is a couple of people who put up their hands immediately. They were just one of New Zealand's top business couples who happened to be at the same table and afterwards took him by the hand and said, can you tell us where these thoughts come from. You see, I could say his only role was to be there to evangelise. No, that was the fruit of him trying to bring kingdom influence. You know, they're still involved in our church. They actually serve in our hospitality lounge. Hand out coffee, greet people, talk to people and hand out biscuits. Totally satisfied because they're so people-focused. They love connecting with people for 30 minutes in our guest lounge. But his leadership... His leadership is a kingdom. It's influencing now other business people and kingdom people. You know, just in the last few minutes I have, I want to share with you just one closing thought. I want to take you to a place where I want you to understand that the lifting of the axe head was such a powerful thing. Because you might say, Martin, okay, how do I, how do I reconnect my calling to my vocation? How do I... How do I the purpose I've put on the planet for, the thing this nation needs, how do I get that? I want you to notice two things. The prophet said to him, where did you lose it? Show me where you were when you lost it. And so the little prophet takes Elijah, who's like a symbol, a type of God himself, the Holy Spirit, literally comes to this representative of God. And he says, show me where you lost it. And he takes him to the tree which he was chopping down. He goes, right here. Bam. I'm trying to cut a beam. Bam, and this thing flies off, lands in the water. And I don't know where it is. I can't, it's deep and it's murky. And, I... and then the prophet pulls out a knife and cuts it, says a piece, a twig off that tree. Now, I want you to notice this. The man's calling, his vocation, his, or his assignment, I should say, right? Let's say, for example, that was in the music industry. Or let's say it was in politics. Or let's say it was in, in community or policing or whatever. Whatever this person's assignment, the man of God cuts a piece of that. 
He goes to the place where he lost it, says he cut a piece of twig and he threw it out into the water. And as soon as it landed in the water, the axe head, the gifting, came and was attracted to it. This is the principle. It's called the power of proximity. You say, I don't know what my calling is. I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't want my giftings. I don't. The moment you get your vocation or your mission in proximity with your giftings, they'll draw to each other. John Maxwell says it this way. He says, you want to know what to do in life? He says, I'll ask you three questions. You want to know why you're put on the planet? I'll ask you three questions. What makes you cry? What makes you laugh? And what do you dream about? You know, when you see things that start to really get you, like, that's unfair. It might be a justice issue. It might be a case of, how, how can that happen in society? How can, that's wrong. What excites you? You see, when it gets close to you, what suddenly magnetizes? What excites? What comes alive? For other people, it's what makes you laugh? What do you get happy about? If I was preaching just to church leaders or church pastors, I'd say things like, you know, recognize people when you announce, hey, five children gave their life to Jesus this week at kids camp. You'll see the whole church go, but someone down the back's going off, going, yeah, yeah. You see, their proximity. But you see, I'm not teaching just the pastors. I'm talking to kingdom people. So what is it in your workplace? What is it out there? Is it art? Is it like my young friend who says, you know what? When I look at the crime statistics, I'm not going to have an attitude that goes, oh, I guess I've just got to try and constrain this or arrest the bad guys. Something in him goes, that doesn't belong. Abuse doesn't belong. He gets angry about it. There's got to be a way we can change things. There's got to be a way we can push back crime waves. You see, you get his assignment and his gifting together. And it's like, like the axe head. See, axe heads don't float. Not of their own accord. But with the touch of the prophet, the touch of God, you get the touch of God upon your vocation. You get the touch of God upon your parenting. You get the touch of God upon your social or community interest or your business or your, your trade or your studies. Get the touch of God to cut that. Throw it close to where you are. Bam! The thing comes alive. I'd like our worship team to come back to the platform. I want to finish with a true story which illustrates this better than any other. At the 1924 Olympics, a man known as Eric Liddell, the one upon whom the movie Chariots of Fire was based, was at university. His parents were missionaries to China. His sister Jenny, a missionary to China, he was told he would be a missionary to China. And at universities, he studied to be a missionary to China. His passion for athletics came to the fore. He wasn't good. He was great. 1924, 90 years ago. And if you know the story upon which the movie was based, it's a very, very accurate representation of the actual historical events. At the time, the Americans were the predominant athletic force and the British were so much wanting to do that. They had one Lebanese immigrant who was fast, Abrahams, but they had this guy, Liddell, who was coming through university so fast and his key thing was in the 100 metres. Amazing, amazing runner. And so they started to push him to, to represent Britain and the Olympics. He qualified. And then the story tells of how his sister comes to him and says to him that she believed that his passion for running was getting in the way of his faith and his call to be a missionary. She said, you're running so fast you don't even know how to stand still. She challenged him that 
he was prostituting his gifting in one sense. If you know the story, he, he finally turned to her in this defining moment and he said, Jenny, I know that God made me for purpose. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. The accents, the vocation, the calling. The story goes on to say that he says to her, I'm going to run in the Olympics. What happens is the heats for his 100 metre race happen to fall on a Sunday. And for him and his value system at the time, he wanted to model the fact that God's first. So he actually refuses to run in the heats and therefore he loses his place in the Olympics. Even the future King of England, the Prince of Wales at the time, met with him face to face to try and convince him to change his mind. He's recorded a saying to the Prince of Wales, the future King of England. He said, God makes kings and God makes laws and God rules the earth and I, for one, will do as he commands. Said with honour, said with respect, it so much impacted one of the British Olympic team that he went and offered and surrendered his place in the 400 metres to Liddell in default and said, you have more of a chance than even I do. Gave up his dream in honour to prefer one another. History records how Liddell's 400 metre running was good, but it wasn't his best. His best was the 100 But as you know, history tells that on the morning of the race, the heats he passed, the final of the 400 metres, his key American opponent walked up to him at the start of the race and handed a simple note that said, the good book says, he who honours God, I will honour. The gun shoots. Liddell runs the race of his life. Tape snaps on his chest. And Adele wins the gold. But what's amazing about the story of Chariots of Fire is that he still went on to do mission work. But his greatest vocation was his running. He went on for the following months and years to every track meeting, every athletics meeting. This gold medalist would advertise before the start of the race that at the conclusion of the race he would gather in the stadium just to talk to whoever wanted to hear 30 minutes on the theme, where does the strength come from to run the race when it gets hard? And he'd preach out of Isaiah 41. They attribute hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of people coming to faith in Christ to this one man. When I preached this in my church a couple of months ago, I went online the night before and watched the clip. I encourage you to do that. You can go on YouTube and watch the clip out of Chariots of Fire. It's called He Who Honors God. He Who Honors God. I logged on probably 10 o'clock at night. I watched the clip and it touched me so much. 1924 when the race happened. And then I looked underneath at the comments on YouTube. And there was one that had been entered 17 minutes earlier from a person in Africa. And it said these words. I'm not religious. I don't go to church. But something about this man and his message gets me. Ninety years later, 
He's dead and gone. 90 years later, he's still touching lives. That beam is still fitting into people's lives. But Jenny sat with him and said, you know, you're called to be a missionary. And he says, I was made for purpose. But God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Father, I'm praying that today as we understand kingdom on a much broader scale, I'm praying for every person here today who, God, they would say whether the axe head's lost or whether it literally has just been put away or become blunt because they're trying to say, well, God, I, I want to serve you. But, but, but God, I, I thought that was just simply letting that other stuff be minor so I can major on, on, on church or God, I, I, I'm putting that stuff away just to find. No, no, God, I'm praying that today you'd start to throw sticks of, of assignments out into this great congregation that would magnetize with giftings and, and anointings and people would start to dream about how to bring the kingdom of God, how to represent Jesus in different places, workplaces. All over this auditorium right now, this is the altar call. If you say, I want that anointing on my life to build the kingdom of God with my giftings, my assignments, everything God's put on me. I want that anointing on my life to build the kingdom of God every day of the week in our community, society, workplace, study, whatever. Would you simply stand and I want to pray with you. I want to pray one prayer of anointing for every person who says, I'm wanting that grace on my life. Holy Spirit, we stand today. We're cautious and conscious of the holiness of this moment that God, we're asking for you to to put a new anointing on us, God. God, put an anointing on our callings. I'm praying for the tradie. I'm praying, God, for the plumber. I'm praying for the architect, the student, God, the mother or father at home, accessing community, accessing families, the person, God, in politics or economy, and the lawyers, oh God, the sales, the IT, every area, the advertising agencies. God, give favor. Release gifting and gracing to build a a good society with the values and the culture of Christ to represent it to a point that people start to hunger not only after a kingdom, but a king called Jesus. All right, now release in Jesus' name. Fresh anointing onto the callings and vocations of every person. You will build your church if we will disciple the nation. You'll build your church if we disciple the nation. God, I love this house. I love that it's a place to come together for empowerment, God, for equipping, for connection, for, for anointing, to then go out, sent out as representatives. But God, may this house never be too straight, too narrow, too restrictive. May it simply be, God, the, the exit of the, the geyser, the, the fountain of life into the city. In Jesus' name. Just before the guys just lead us, I just want to remind us, just right then, of a word David McCracken gave us. He said that this house would be a well. And wells and and living water would come forth from us because we are the house of the Spirit. And that not only would it be here, but it would go. And there would be people that would go. And we're all called to go. I want to encourage you in that.